Hi everybody, thanks for joining us today. My name is Dr Oliver Pratt, I'm a consultant anaesthetist in Salford and a training programme director in the Northwest School of Anaesthesia. I'd like to welcome you to this, the first in a short series of podcasts brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. These podcasts are all going to look at issues around the introduction of the 2021 curriculum for a CCT in anaesthetics. In this podcast, we hope to give you a broad overview of the new curriculum and address some of the frequently asked questions and hopefully some of the concerns that you might have about the introduction of the new curriculum in August this year. I'm joined today by Dr Chris Carey, who's council member uh, for the Royal College of Anaesthetists and chair of the training committee, and by Dr Andy Wallet, who's deputy postgraduate dean in the West Midlands and the COPMED lead dean for anaesthetics. Thanks both for joining us. Um, and I think I'd like to start with a relatively simple question, but one that I think many people will be asking. And that um, I'll perhaps put to you first, Andy. Why do we need to have a new curriculum at all? Oh, thanks, Holly, for the, for the excellent question to start off with. Um, I think one of the, the major things uh, around all curricula, anaesthetics and, and others, is around introducing general professional capabilities into curricula um, and uh, the, this is something the GMC are particularly uh, interested in doing um, to, so that we make sure we train all our doctors in, in the kind of skills they need that perhaps been neglected in, in uh, previous uh, curricula um, in the past uh, and these sort of things may be around patient safety and quality improvement, things around health promotion and illness prevention, education and training, uh, the very important issue of leadership and working in a team, as well as things like research, scholarship and, and safeguarding. So um, uh, these are things that pervade all curricula and it's an ideal opportunity really um, uh, uh, for those to be incorporated into, into the anaesthetic curriculum to be part of the, uh, uh, the framework in which we're sort of following throughout uh, uh, the professional career that, that our doctors go through from medical students right through foundation into a basic and higher specialist training. Specifically for anaesthetics, um, we, we have seen uh, over the years, um, there, there is a, a point in, in career where, um, where there is a, a holdup, if you like. It, it does take, on average, um, uh, to get through a, a seven-year programme, eight years, uh, even taking into account um, uh, those those trainees that go less than full time and have illness and other other thing, other issues. It, it does um, it does take uh, longer than the prescribed time to get through the program, and, and often that's because of things like hold up uh, at, after, between core and applying for higher specialist training. Uh, one of the major things is around uh, passing the primary exam, um, and uh, to get through that in in two years it can be a challenge. Um, and in a sense, looking at new curriculum and balancing the seven years, uh, looking at the way markers and, and moving those um, was, was felt to be uh, a good way of, of, of managing this. So expanding the core to, to three years uh, rather than the two and shortening higher special training uh, to, to four years rather than the five uh, is a way of doing that. So uh, we managed to generate the workforce we need uh, in efficient space of time. Um, the other thing was uh, uh, that hold up created a lot of anxiety in our trainees. They were often having to go into uh, trust or LEP posts uh, that uh, perhaps weren't um, 
as rigorously educationally uh, managed uh, with the quality processes that that we, we are able to do if they're within programmes. Uh, and so to have a programme set up where, in fact, we were finding that 36% of our trainees were having to, to go sideways to actually go through the curriculum seemed um, uh, the, the wrong way of doing things. And, and uh, in a sense, uh, giving that extra time to get the primary exam in the three years and core training was one way in which uh, the new curriculum will help to uh, make that a more streamlined process. So overall, then we're saying that with the new curriculum, we hope that the trainees will, will get through the training programme more efficiently with fewer holdups and, and hopefully they'll have better skills, the generic professional skills to work as a, as a consultant in the, in the NHS. Absolutely. And good for well-being as well, because obviously if your, your training is seen to, to have to take this rather circuitous route, it, 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 is, it can be upsetting and uh, challenging. So um, that pressure to get through that part one in, in, in two years is removed. Um, and uh, hopefully we will see um, a happier uh, group of trainees as a result. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Chris, can you um, perhaps explain just in general terms, how, how have the college gone about developing the new curriculum? So thank you very much, Ronnie. Yes, uh, we convened a curriculum review group um, nearly four years ago now in the sort of autumn of 2017 when we were starting to work on this. And that comprised roughly 25 people. So there were representatives from College Council, from the Training Committee, uh, the lead regional advisors, lead college tutors. Importantly, we had uh, representation from anaesthetists in training as well, both from the, the council trainee reps and also the KSS education fellows that have worked on the curriculum with that group over the last uh, three, four years. Um, and other expert involvement from people who had particular sort of educational expertise around things like assessments. And that group really came together to look at both the format of what we wanted from the curriculum um, and also developing an assessment strategy that we could use. And, and we found that it was a really important part of the process to evolve the um, current educator, the, the current assessment strategy uh, to uh, try and improve the way that assessments are implemented within the training programme. So that group really took on the responsibility of developing the new curriculum, but then we engaged with a much wider group of people. We had a series of stakeholder events a couple of years ago where we invited representatives from um, the specialist societies, the association, anaesthetists in training groups, uh, schools of anaesthesia, obviously the faculties, the pain medicine and intensive care medicine were involved. And we presented our ideas and had some roundtable discussions about how uh, they could help us to shape the, uh, the, the, the way that the curriculum was going to look. So following those events, we um, established a draft proposal which we took to the GMC and we've been in regular contact with the GMC and also in discussion with the statutory education bodies from the four nations so that's HE and their equivalents in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland um, and it's been a very very long detailed and involved process but we finally uh, submitted our final draft to the GMC at the beginning of this year and it was approved um, just very recently for implementation in August. Okay, and can you 
in perhaps just again in fairly simple terms can you summarize the the main differences between the the 2010 curriculum that we're all used to and the new 2021 curriculum yes absolutely so perhaps the most important difference in terms of what people will look at is the structure of the training program um, and we've moved away from a two-year core training and five-year higher training uh, programs to three-year core training and four years at higher so at higher level so the uh, the total duration of the training program will remain at seven years. Um, we have moved from four levels, so core, intermediate, higher and advanced, to three, which will be called stages one, two and three. <clears throat> and then the way that training is um, divided up within each of those three stages is now actually uh, set out in terms of 14 domains. Um, which encompass both the generic professional capabilities and the, the professional qualities of uh, anaesthetists and then also the clinical uh, requirements as well. So the first seven cover professional domains and the final seven cover areas of clinical practice. And what we've done is we've divided that area, the, the clinical elements into the experience of the practitioner, the anaesthetist and the patient, I suppose I would say, rather than aligning it to particular surgical specialties, which we didn't feel um, reflected some of the generic learning of, of some areas of an anaesthetic practice. So whilst there still will be a focus on areas such as obstetric anaesthesia, paediatric anaesthesia, neuro and cardiac anaesthesia, the way that's articulated and delivered within the training programme is in a much more flexible manner. But those those subject areas are still there within the curriculum, are they? Absolutely. And importantly, we have also um, moved on from the previous um, spiral learning methodology for duplicating intermediate and higher training. Um, we found and, and importantly, we reflected on the uh, feedback from the morale and welfare survey that the college uh, published in 2017 that trying to get people through two attachments in those areas was leading to lots and lots of moving around in some parts of the country and lots of duplication of assessment as well and we felt that this wasn't something that was proving to be a, a valuable learning experience and was often quite disruptive for both the, the individual anaesthetists in training and also very difficult for the training program directors to deliver so those areas now certainly neuro and cardiac will be delivered in a single attachment within stage two but with the opportunity to um, gain more experience uh, within stage three of the program and if we had trainees for example let, let's just take neuro anesthesia for an example if we have a trainee who has to go to the uh, emergency department in a district general hospital to manage a head injury presumably there's a way that they can count those sort of capabilities that they develop and that experience towards their neuroanesthesia learning. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we were very keen to try and encompass the entire breadth of the experience within the training programme to make that something that would be included in the assessment methodology and enable people to draw on their real life experience to achieve the, the sign offs in each of the three stages. That's great. Thanks, Chris. So I think we've already touched on the reasoning when I was chatting to Andy, the reasoning why we have, have gone through a three year core training programme 
instead of a two-year train, core training programme. And that's largely related to the fact that many trainees in a two-year core training programme need an extension, particularly to help with the exam. But I'm sure you know that there's been a lot of concern about the impact of that particular change, that two years to three years. Um, there's been a lot of concern uh, with respect to recruitment in particular. So when we transition, if all the ST3 jobs are turned into CT3 jobs, will, will there be enough posts to employ everyone finishing those CT2 jobs? Perhaps, Andy, you could start touching on that. Yeah, thanks. Yes, well, absolutely. Uh, when we look at HST um, recruitment, um, the, the average number have been about 353 per year, whereas the numbers in core anaesthetic training is around 570 uh, plus the uh, about 220 in, in ACCS. So you see there, there is a, a very big imbalance between the, the larger number of trainees in core as opposed to the the uh, smaller uh, number in, in higher specialist training. So if we were to convert um, ST3 posts to CT3, we were left with a shortfall. Um, um, so if we're going to have the three year of core, we, we do need to find a number of posts to, to satisfy that. And, and that has been a uh, something that the college, HEE, and in fact the four SCBs have been working on uh, over the last um, uh, year, year and a half, uh, to to identify potential posts that could be earmarked uh, to um, to increase the core, uh, the pool of core training posts. Uh, and, and the way that is largely going to be done, uh, and we now have agreement from. Uh, uh, HEE and the other SEBs to, to manage that is to convert a number of trust and LED post, uh, based posts and, and in Scotland there are there's still some uh, uh, LAT posts for example uh, similarly in, in Wales um, and we will be able to convert these into NTN posts that will become officially within training programmes uh, and to the tune of around 100 to 150 across the four nations. Uh, initial stumbling block was the fact that um, these will require the, the support, the financial support from, from HEE and from the other uh, statutory education bodies uh, to fund a part of those, the, the educational tariff part of those, 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 uh, those posts. But we now have agreement that that can happen. And so from uh, August of 2022, we will be introducing the CT3 grade um, uh, supported uh, by these extra posts. Um, so. Um, that will allow us then uh, 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 to, to have the three years of core, but there will still be uh, those um, those coming out of ACCS and and, uh, and the uh, uh, core anaesthetics training that will go into ST4, um, um, and there'll still be that imbalance with the numbers at that stage, but at least the, the three years of core training will exist for core anaesthetic training and indeed for ACCS as well, which had to transition in a similar way at the same time. Um, so we've managed that. Now in the future, uh, there may be a, a, a rebalancing of the numbers of core to higher training. Um, and that's something we may be working on with the college um, uh, and the education bodies uh, going forward. Uh, but we've got over this initial stage, if you like, with this with, with the new curriculum to, to make sure that, that we can fit the core training in the three years. So uh, that, that's been a large piece of work uh, and the GMC have approved that plan now uh, through the, uh, the so-called CAG process, but we are asked to monitor that 
there have to be different there are going to have to be different solutions in different regions because uh, there's no one size fits all to how this is going to work but i think looking at it by and large these posts do exist these um trust and led posts that we can um uh, put under the umbrella of programs and in fact as part of the challenge we've had with covid this year um uh, a lot of regions are looking to um create um uh, CT3 equivalent posts um, and these will be ideal if you like pilots for ha uh, for potential posts that can be uh, then changed into official CT3 posts next year so that's a process that will be happening over the next 12 months so in a way with all the challenges of, of, of recovering from COVID we, we're sort of segueing into the new curriculum uh, and um, because we're um, because we're doing that it, it's it's actually uh, allowed us to do uh, to do it in a smoother way uh, and perhaps is one of the silver linings as to uh, uh, the, the COVID pandemic and the fact that uh, um, uh, the the new curriculum is, is seen as or introducing the curriculum is seen as part of the the solution to the the challenge we have so uh, that's been quite helpful. So so if I was a uh, and perhaps you'd like to answer this one Chris but if I was a a, a CT2 trainee finishing in August next year, so August 22, then I can be assured that I'll have a CT3 post to go into. Yes, absolutely. So the guidance that we've given to schools is that anybody who is due to finish in a CT2 post after February 22, who will not therefore have the opportunity to apply for an ST3 post because the final ST3 recruitment is to start in Feb 22, will be given a third year in their core training programme. Um, so anybody who is in a less than full time training post, for instance, and is due to finish CT2, you know, March, April onwards next year, will automatically roll into a third year post. Um, and we feel that it's really important that, that we support people in that way and make sure that everybody who is starting CT2 from August and, and would need that third year does have access to them. And, uh, and, and it, it's been a major undertaking to secure those additional posts to ensure that. I was just, if, if perhaps we can just think for a moment about those finishing in August this year or those finishing in February next year, February 22. So they would be the people who wouldn't necessarily automatically get a run through into CT3. Uh, and they will presumably be looking for their own sort of clinical fellow type jobs. Yes, so this group, um, it must be said, are the, are the people who have been affected most by the consequences of the pandemic. We had originally hoped that anybody finishing CT2 from this summer would be able to go into a CT3 post this year. However, that would have required us to not recruit to ST3. Now, the problem that we struck was that there was incredible disruption to ST3 recruitment last year as a result of the lockdown that came in about a week before the interviews were scheduled to happen. As a result of that, we weren't able to interview people for ST3 posts in 2020, and those posts were allocated on the back of the portfolio scores, which was very controversial but unfortunately unavoidable in terms of what information we had in order to be able to allocate the posts. So because of that disruption and because of the fact that we didn't have a proper ST3 recruitment round last year, we took the very, very difficult decision 
to continue for another year uh, with ST3, which meant that we weren't able to allocate CT3 posts for, from this August, um, which has caused significant and very justified concerns amongst uh, many doctors. But unfortunately, I think that the decision had to be taken to do that, given the fact that the access to ST3 last year was very, very much disruptive, but, but by the uh, by the lockdown in itself. Um, if I just come on to what we've done to try and ensure that people have a good experience of their CT3 top up post. So we've asked schools across the country, we've worked very hard with heads of school, training programme directors, regional advisors, college tutors and also clinical directors to try and establish sufficient posts for everybody that was unsuccessful in ST3 recruitment to be able to catch up on that year of training that they need to complete stage one of the new curriculum and move on to ST4 um, recruitment when that comes into play. Um, as a result of that, we've implemented very specific guidance about what we expect from those posts in several key areas. I think the most important one is pay and that they will be equivalent to ST3 posts and therefore should be paid as equivalent to ST3 posts. And we're absolutely clear about that. We've got support from the BMA and support from the association in the statement that we put out. We also want equity in terms of access to things like study leave, in terms of supervision and, and educational supervision being part of that, and also opportunities to undertake training lists in part as part of their day-to-day -day work. Um, so I'm very pleased that it, it, it does seem like um, the schools have really engaged with this and put a lot of effort into securing these posts and we will keep a very, very close eye indeed on them over the coming year and we'll be actively monitoring um, the, the terms and conditions that these doctors are working under to ensure that they're given all the opportunities they need to, to make up that additional year of training so that they can apply for a, for a registrar job effectively in the future. That's great, Chris. Thanks. So just just to clarify on that. Um, so if you're in a CT3 top up post, you can do the equivalent training to all your to, to all the um, uh, somebody who would be in the next year doing a CT3 in run through training. So uh, just if they found themselves, if they completed that a little ahead of schedule, the CT3 competencies or capabilities ahead of schedule, could they then go on and start working towards stage two capabilities, for example? So there's been a really important ruling by the GMC um, to allow doctors to count training outside of a training program towards a CCT. And this is something that came in last year. It wasn't sort of widely publicised at the time, but I think this is really going to change the game in terms of how we look at training programmes and how we manage training programmes. So the college are working on guidance for recognising a further 12 months towards uh, a CCT programme that doctors at any stage in any situation will be able to um, ask to be recognised by schools. And, and the responsibility for that recognition will have to rest with schools. It will probably form part of a, an enhanced ARCP process. Um, 
But yes, so basically, uh, given that at the moment it looks like it will probably be two years before we are able to recruit to ST4, although we are working hard to see if we can establish some ST4 recruitment before August 2023, and, and I hope that we'll have some good news in the future on that. Um, but certainly that 12 months after the, the CT3 top-up year can be used to gain um, assessments and modular sign-offs towards stage two program and similarly for people at other stages of their training they can go out of program and apply to have that recognized towards their uh, progression in the training program so we hope to have guidance released within the next month or so in the first instance it would be up to 12 months and of course that's 12 months in addition to the ct3 uh, year so so essentially one of the years of, of the HST program could be completed before uh, people are recruited. Okay, so you know in, in summary again, so if you find yourself in that eighteen month block, say you finish in February twenty two, you don't have an ST three job, you can do your CT three equivalence capabilities and then potentially start working even on stage two, so the time wouldn't necessarily be wasted. Yes, absolutely. That's yes, right. and we um, we will be producing guidance for that. I think the, the one thing that I would say very clearly at this stage is that that evidence will have to be presented using the lifelong learning platform. So that will be the key to this, that people will be able to complete uh, recognised elements of training on the LLP uh, for consideration. In terms of transition um, from one aspect of the curriculum to the other, so we're now talking about trainees who are already in training. Uh, when they, the new curriculum is going to be introduced in August this year, August 2021, and in many cases, uh, transition should be fairly straightforward, but in some cases it might be a little bit more tricky. And I, I imagine that in some cases with, there might even have to be a bespoke arrangement for transition with made between trainees and their training programme directors or, or, or college tutors. I'm thinking, I guess, of the less than full time trainings. I don't know if you'd like to comment anything. You know, are there any special arrangements being made to think about the the more tricky areas of transition? So I'll come in on that if I may, Holly. Um, yes, we've thought very hard about this. I think the key principle for this is use of the LLP. So the current LLP um, should be used for anybody staying on the 2010 curriculum up to the point of an ARCP and the end of their academic training year. Um, and then they would be expected to move to a, a, a new lifelong learning platform, which will be set up um, to uh, recognise the 2021 curriculum after that. Um, and if you think about that as a principle, suddenly it becomes a bit clearer what people will need to do, because actually recognising evidence on two different platforms or even getting evidence uh, in preparation for an ALCP on two platforms is going to be pretty difficult, I would say unmanageable. So effectively, what we're asking people is to finish a training year um, and then transition from the beginning of their next training year. So for, for many trainees, that will they'll be able to do that from August this year. For those that rotate in February, um, of which there is a roughly a quarter of, of uh, people in 
on rotations across the country do rotate in February, um, they should transition from February of next year and again complete an ARCP on the 2010 curriculum using the existing LLP in December, January and then move to the new curriculum from next February. Now in terms of uh, how we support less than full-time trainees. There are obviously a large number of less than full-time trainees in anaesthesia. The recommendation is that they have a discussion with training programme director. We would advise that the sooner they move across to the new curriculum, the better it will be. And again, that should take place after an ARCP. So whenever they are having an ARCP, probably following that recognition and the sign off of that period of training um, and starting a new period of training, it won't necessarily align to a year of the curriculum, but but a new period of, of training, um, they should be looking to move to the, the new uh, LLP and the new curriculum. Um, just in terms of deadlines, the, uh, the ruling uh, that we have to abide by is that everybody should transition to the new curriculum by February 2024. So that does give people a bit of flexibility and it means that anyone who would expect to get their CCT before February 2024 will be able to continue on the 2010 curriculum. So that gives people effectively two and a half years from this summer. Um, so those in ST6 and 7 or those who are going into ST6 and 7, if they're not planning to work less than full time, if they're not planning to go out of programme and they're not planning to take career breaks or maternity leave, for instance, then they will be able to continue to the point of completion on the 2010 curriculum. So they will never need to go on to the new curriculum? No, they won't. And we'll continue to provide the LLP to support that until that point in time. But it is really important that people think about what their own plans are, because after February 2024, they will have to get a CCT on the 2021 curriculum. So anybody who is very, very near to the end could experience a bit of disruption having to present all their evidence on the new curriculum if they don't move across fairly soon. And with respect to that, just one final question, really, with respect to the lifelong learning platform, if there's going to be a new version curriculum, lifelong learning platform and an old version curriculum, lifelong learning platform, how do how does a trainee change over from one to the other? So when they move across to the new curriculum, when when anaesthetists in training move across to the new curriculum, they will be able to uh, set up, set themselves up on the new LLP. Um, and we'll make sure that the data from, from the old LLP is still obviously kept safe uh, by the college. But once they're moving on to the new LLP, it's expected that people will use that one um, and not switch back and forward between the two. So it's really important that there's a very clear um, sign off process for, for completion of units of training and, and periods of training on the old LLP before people move across. And there is specific guidance about people moving across in the middle of stage one and stage two, for instance, that's available on the website. It's it's not it's a little bit complicated, so not something that I think I'd be able to explain in a podcast, but I would urge people to go and look on the website for how they can be supported to, to transition to um, that stage one and stage two uh, sign off um, when they're halfway through their sort of core and intermediate, perhaps higher training already. And I think it's worth saying, isn't it, probably that there's 
there's a, a mountain of information about the new curriculum on the website in general. Uh, and certainly I found it a really good resource to keep up with the most up-to-date press releases and the most up-to-date developments in terms of the new curriculum. Always worth having a look at that training section of the college website. Yes, absolutely. We've, we've made a real effort to try and make sure that as much information as possible is available for people. So we would urge both trainees and trainers to, to head there um, and see uh, in, in the first instance to see if their, their questions can be answered by the resources on the website. That's great. Well, I think that's a good point to draw the chat to a close. Uh, so Chris and Andy, thanks both for uh, giving up your time and joining us this afternoon. I think it's been a very uh, useful chat and we've covered a number of really interesting areas. And thank you too to everybody that's listened or watched this podcast. I hope you found it helpful and please keep an eye out for a further podcast related to the new curriculum, which will hopefully be released in the coming days and weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon.